มูตสาวกวัตโตอรหัตโตสมาสัมพุทธัสสะนโมตสาวกวัตโตอรหัตโตสมาสัมพุทธัสสะนโมตสาวกวัตโตอรหัตโตสมาสัมพุทธัสสะพุทธังธรรมังสังฆังนมัสสังผมแต่ 
so much of the teachings as recorded in the scriptures and in the tradition and given to us by our teachers is really about preparation. So this is, yeah, this is what I'd like to uh, contemplate for a while, if I may, this evening, together with you. Those aspects that, that we perhaps overlook a little bit and then how this moves into what we're probably in this for, you know, the, the practice. There's a tape recording I have of a talk of Lumpucha, and I think it's probably one of the last recordings of anything he said, and it was taken at Tamsang Pet when Lumpur was receiving some guests, Thai people, I think. They'd been over here and they'd gone back to, to Thailand and they'd gone to see Lumpur and I think I got that around the wrong way. I think they were just coming over here. They were coming over here to see us. And so they went to see Lumpur and they gave him a tape recorder and said, do you want to send a message to, to the people in England? And so Lumpur took this tape recorder and starts going through his names. Oh, Sumaito, Suchito, Anando. And he gives this very friendly, uplifting talk and, and about how being an abbot is like being a rubbish tin and you just sort of sit there and be dumped on and, and that's your job and if nobody else dumps on you well then you've got to process your own rubbish and it was very helpful and to the point when he'd finished giving this specific message to send to us the tape was left running and he just started chatting and in the course of this um, talking about practice and he, he, he says at one stage he says you know people think sitting on their cushion is practice and they, they've got it all wrong he said, this, is, this is preparation this is preparation it's important it's important we've got to do the preparation the practice he said the practice is the he uses the expression something like arom katapjai which means that when, when the passions impact on the heart, are you there for it? That at the moment, at the moment when the passions flare up and impact on the heart, are you there for it? That's the moment of practice. And it's not something we can do, actually. No, you don't go on, go on a course and learn how to do that we sit and prepare ourselves so that that happens and so yeah so I, I have this in my own thinking uh, on practice I, I, I have an understanding I have a, a perspective on it that the, there are two aspects really yes there's the practice which, which one was inspired by in the example of others and reading about in books and, and that one just says yes I want to be there for the moment and, and all that but one's come to realize that, uh, yeah, there's the preparation, there's the training. And if we don't do it, uh, there are consequences. So you know, many of you will have your own experience of the consequences of not really being properly prepared. I, I certainly have my own experiences of that. The preparation and, and the practice and how these go together. There's a verse that in the, in the Pali that many of you will know, which um, I know from the uh, work I did on preparing and doing a rendering of the Dhammapada. 
very enjoyable and fruitful task of paying attention to the actual verses and, and the different translations and and also the the stories that have come to be associated with the, the, these these utterances of the Buddha. And so this one verse, which is also what, what we know as the Owada Patimoka, and, and this gathering that we're having now is something that we used to have around Mahapuja. Um, it was, I think, somewhere along the line it got changed and we lengthened our retreat or something. But for a few years there, we all used to gather together here at Amarawati, I think, for Asala Puja and Maga Puja, sorry, and, and we used to chant the Awada Patimoka. So anyway, whether you were here then or not, I'm sure you know this verse, the Sabha Papas Akaranam Kusalasu Pasampada Satchita Prayotapanam Etang Bhutanasasanam And looking at this verse, for me, well, I, actually, I talk about it often because it, I find it, it presents in, in a very full, rounded way. I mean, the last line of this verse, this is the teaching of the Buddhas. I find that so inspiring. I, just, I, really, I really get off on that. It's, and it's great to know that Gautama said it, all the other ones said it as well. And, uh, the, the context of the story is, uh, at least the way it's re- there's the story that's recorded in the, uh, around the Dhammapada anyway, is uh, that the Venerable Ananda was in his afternoon contemplations and he was pondering on what the Lord had told him about previous Buddhas and, uh, and how they'd lived and, and their lifestyle and so on. And, and then it occurred to him, so well the Lord hasn't actually told us what they taught and so this is what's reported. And so it said that, that Ananda went to see the Lord and said, well can you tell us what Kona, Gamanasa and Ripasi and these great noble Buddhas of the past, what were their teachings? And, and this is what is reported the Lord said. That Sabha Papasa Akana Kusala Sampada this last line, etang buddhana sasanang, which I think for years I mispronounced it. I think the etang buddha sasanang, which is inaccurate. Etang buddhana sasanang, actually comes etang buddhanang, which is the buddhas. This is, this is what all the buddhas have taught. So really, if anybody ever asks us what's Buddha's teaching, and uh, if ever I think, well, how do I give a presentation on the Buddha's teaching, I, I, I go back to contemplating this. and On this occasion, uh, contemplating how it fits with this preparation and practice, I, I think it's, it's very significant that the first line of this verse, the first line, talks about refraining, restraining from that which is evil. And, and yeah, when I think back, I, you know, I can remember times in my life could have been better prepared in that area. Being, recognizing how important it is to really be prepared and restraining. The words there we all know Akaranang, the, the 
the not doing, karaniya mantakusadena, the doing that which should be done, akaranam, which should not be done. So the sabba papasa akaranam, the, the non doing of all papa and uh, evil. I mean, it's a heavy word, isn't it, really? Evil. And I personally shy away from it. But we know what it means. And uh, so this is where the verse begins, is to refrain from doing that which, is, that which shouldn't be done, to really cultivate the capacity for refraining, to cultivate the restraint. And if we don't have that, well, we can dive into the third line, satchitaprayotpanang, the purification of the jet, purification of the heart, how inspiring oh, to have a pure heart and to become purified like the masters and and I know that's what I wanted to do. And in my first wasa, when I was living with Ajahn Tate, I wanted to, I wanted to purify the heart. I'd had, had my initial insights when I was living in Malambimbi in Australia. And, and it was so beautiful in those days to be up there on the ridge meditating all day long and, and hugging trees and tears of bliss. And I would sit in samadhi and had samadhi in those days. And... And I would, I would bake bread and I would let it rise for 40 minutes while I walked meditation and I'd come back and then, and then I would just break it and smell it with samadhi and, and then I would share it with samadhi with my fellow hippies. And in those days, I, I really had, I had some very useful insights when I was getting my own way all the time and very inspired. But I do remember that when I decided I was going to head off to Asia, which is where everybody was, you know, all the enlightened people were, that I needed some money and I went down to Sydney to print some money. And being in a position where you've got to go to work and you're living with people who don't share the same values and the same interests and they're not impressed with your spirituality, like, Everybody on our commune was very impressed with me because I had stopped smoking things that they were still smoking and nobody in Sydney was impressed with me and, and uh, I fell apart basically. I had a very bad time and I lost my samadhi and, and I can remember the pain, the pain of, of losing something that was actually very beautiful and it wasn't, you know, I mean when I was up there on the ridge and looking out across Byron Bay and the sunrise and I was sitting there and feeling so peaceful. There was something very appropriate and really beautiful about that. It was, I wasn't smoking anything and it was a natural reconnecting recognition of something, really recognizing something wonderful that was there. And it was there. I wasn't imagining it. It was there when I'd go back to it. It was still there. And all you had to do was focus attention in a certain way and you could go back to this stunningly beautiful place of, of tremendous joy. And, and when I went to Sydney, I couldn't do it anymore, couldn't get it anymore. And, and it was the lack of restraint, for sure. And I can remember on that occasion, that time, those few weeks I was in Sydney earning money to go travelling, I remember thinking at the time, if ever I'm in a position where I am encouraging people to practice meditation. There's one thing I want to do is encourage people to learn restraint. Because if you potentize 
consciousness and yet we haven't learned how to contain ourselves then the consequences can be really painful and so I think this is yeah this is the first line of the stanza it's also I think many of you will know that the uh, this is the the reason that the, the Buddha sits on the lotus this is the foundation this is on what the Buddha sits the lotus is the symbol for moral purity the lotus if you've ever lived in Thailand it's a beautiful flower but often it grows in the bog in the northeast of Thailand they, they have this crop that they grow what is it called? It's, um, jute isn't it? It's some sort of jute and on Vindabhat in the morning you would walk to the villages and often the jute was left soaking in the paddy fields and it really stank I mean really rancid foul smell but out of that would come the lotus and the lotus, these beautiful lotus flowers and you just think, how does that, you know, there's something it's, it's a powerful symbol and it's not surprising that the Buddha chose this that, that a heart that is imbued with restraint, with moral restraint is beautiful, is really beautiful not only is it beautiful but this is the foundation this is the foundation on which the aspiration for enlightenment is established so I don't think it's insignificant that the first line of the stanza is refrain or the not doing of that which is unsuitable. We all know what is unsuitable, but the capacity to really refrain from it. We might even think that we know, like when I first ordained as a bhikkhu and I, I went to live, well I was in Bangkok for a few months, then I went to live with Ajahn Tate and I'm eternally indebted for that period of time I was living with Ajahn Tate, but I had such a miserable time and it wasn't because there was anything wrong with the Tate or the monks living there or my aspiration for that matter in fact I, uh, I practiced very hard I was really committed and I uh, had a few translations of teachings of Ajahn Chah and I'd go through reading these I was learning verses of Sin Sin Ming trusting in the heart by the third Chinese patriarch and I'd have one verse pinned up on my pillar in my kuti and I would contemplate these verses and I would walk meditation all day and sit meditation and I was incredibly diligent and, and it was all brought into focus also because my kuti was right on the bank of the Mekong River and we used to bathe in there. at the beginning of the Wask we would bathe in the Mekong River but Russians invaded and, and it was going to traces coming over the top of the monastery at night and you couldn't get in the river anymore because that was Laos had fallen to the, um, the Russians and so there was a kind of certain kind of intensification of our situation so I, w I was really into practice and trying to get back desperately to this wonderful state that I'd had when I was living up there and amongst the blue gum trees in Marabimbi and it did produce some benefit there was some uh, very significant moments that I can remember actually one, one evening when a very significant shift took place and one of those moments where one feels the extraordinary appropriateness of everything and it's not something again it's not something that that one did it's something that happened I wasn't enlightened I mean I'm not <laughs> 
somebody was saying to me the other day that they were quoting, I think it's Krishnamurti, who was saying that enlightenment is an accident. It's not something you do, it's something that happens. And meditation makes you accident prone. I, I like that. And um, so my meditation seemed to make me accident prone, but it wasn't enlightenment. But it was a, a very significant moment, and it was so wonderful. It was such a relief. And I wanted to go and share it with Ajahn Tate, and so. Uh, after evening puja, every night we would, all the monks would go down to Ajahn Tate's kuti. And, and I mean, literally all of us, we would go down there and there'd be about eight of us on him at a time, massaging him. Although he was, I don't know, 75 or something at the time. and He'd been diagnosed as having leukemia um, a couple of years before and they said he had six months to live. And he said, well, I'm not going to die in your hospital. I'll go back to the monastery. And So he went back to the monastery and Two years later, he was still doing very well. and Actually, we did very well to 90-something. But we would go down and massage him, and, and in this evening, we were massaging him. He liked to talk with us while we were massaging him. I mean, it's not just a kind of gentle little Swedish sort of thing. It's a kind of real tie, you know, elbow stuff right in there. And I don't know how it happened. I mean, all of us on him at one time. And he loved it. And, and, um, but anyway, this night... We started talking and, and one of the monks started translating to him because I couldn't speak time my experience of what was happening and that, uh, you know, this miserable Farang, which I had been for so long, was suddenly happy and Ajahn Tate stopped the meditation and wanted to stop the massage and wanted to talk some more. And, and so we talked about what was going on and I was very happy to have all the attention and, and it was just such a wonderful situation to have you know, been in this with a great teacher and to be feeling this way. But as wonderful as it was, it was really the beginning of the most excruciating ordeal. I can't tell you how horrible the next seven years were. Something opened up at that point which there was no way of closing again. And all the lack of preparation basically was thrust in my face at that time, at that moment. And, and I realized the complete and utter lack of restraint it's not just being restrained with the body. It's not, you know, you say, Sabha Papa Sakana, oh yeah, I've done that, been there, done that, you know, I keep my precepts. I was, I was keeping my precepts. You know, every little one of them, I was very strict about my precepts. But this is not just talking about keeping your precepts. This is talking about having established that principle, that having internalized, having really worked on it for years, worked on it remembering that principle that restraint is the foundation, restraint is the first line. And I didn't have it. And all the misery of my 20, whatever, four years came up and uh, it was the most hideous ordeal I, I ever had. And at the end of that while, so they flew me down to Bangkok and put me in hospital for a few weeks and tried to fix me up. I thought I had stomach infections. <laughs> I can assure you it was a lot more than a stomach infection and it took me seven years before I really had a moment of feeling contented again. So I mentioned that by way of encouragement and, and consideration of the principle of restraint. It's not just the case that we learn about the precepts and try to watch what we say and, and watch what we do. Yes, that's very important, but the cultivation of this principle is the building of an inner structure. It's an actual structure of containment. And if it's not there, the good bit's not going to work. You know, purification of the heart simply won't happen. 
My favorite image of this is, is one that Vinod Miocone gave me. Some of you know Vinod Miocone, the Rinzai Zen teacher who lives alternately in, in Luton and in St. John's Wood. And Before she went off to Japan and underwent the ordeal of 10 years hard training, she had trained herself as a geologist and went to university. And so she told me once how they did these experiments in the laboratory for, for making industrial diamonds. I find it such a perfect image. Some of you may have heard me speak about it before, but I think it's worth repeating again. That, and you've got the carbon dust, which carbon dust is not worth anything really. I mean, carbon dust is just carbon dust. It's black and dusty and big deal. But you're told there's a potential for diamonds. Now, you know, diamonds have got value. And, but for the transformation to take place of the carbon dust into diamonds, there's got to be tremendous heat tremendous pressure but even if there's tremendous heat and tremendous pressure these are the ingredients if the container is not there if the container is not not just not there but if it's not really well established and she, she said you know, there were incidents where the container was not properly established and you end up with an awful mess and when she told me about that, my mind went straight back to my first year as a monk. I'm thinking, yeah, that was a really awful mess. That was a, and that was it. There was a lack of containment. And so this is not just about behaving ourselves, learning to restrain our actions of body and speech. It's much more than that. It's the establishment, the cultivation of, a, of an inner structure which really protects us. It really protects us. There's a, a formula which some of you may be familiar with when, uh, when Tudong monks are, are um, traditionally going off to wander in the forests and you expect to encounter all sorts of things and it's, it's usually understood to be a not easy time in the forest and, and you hear stories, you've read stories, Ajahn Man's book, Ajahn Tate's books and Ajahn Turidamo's stories and encountering elephants and tigers and so on and it's, uh, yeah, it's just an ordeal. But one of the formulas that's given is that if you're out there on your own and you're caught in terror, whether it's because you suddenly sink into your own perfectly prepared black hole, which each of us has uniquely designed for us, or whether it's stimulated by tigers or snakes or malaria fever, you feel you're going to die, whatever it is, it's quite understandable that sooner or later you're going to come right up against terror. Not just mediocre fear, not just feeling a little anxious about whatever. Terror, really serious fear. And it's part of the practice, it's part of the way. And one of the formulas, one of the recommendations that's given to monks going off in Tudong is that when you get to this point, one of the things you can try doing one of the tricks you can try is sit there and reflect on the purity of your precepts. And I think, well, what good does that do? I mean, what's well, it's not a matter of whether it makes logical sense or not. It's just what does it actually do? 
this is the same as, as that story that many of you will be familiar with of that poor monk who was ordained and great potential and tremendous enthusiasm but was possessed for 20 years with uninterrupted, well maybe it was interrupted, but pretty consistent lust, sexual desire, poor guy, for 20 years. And he said in the scriptures it says, not a finger snap of samadhi. And for 20 years he was possessed with lust and he just says, this is too much. I can't do it anymore. I mean, I've heard people say that after two or three years or five years or six years or ten years. But this guy was 20 years and not a finger snap of samadhi. He says, this is it. And he Apparently, the scriptures tell us he took a knife and actually drew blood. But fortunately, at that moment, he'd been sufficiently well prepared. He'd been well enough prepared to remember what was important, to reflect on what was important. And at that moment, what he remembered was that in 20 years, he'd kept his precepts. And then the heart, in and of itself, nothing to do with his clever egoic tendencies, you know, whatever he'd learned from some book or whatever, it was just the heart in and of itself in reflecting on the purity of his restraint and the effort, the heart, the gladness that arose was what was needed for the transformation to take place. And we're told that at that point he entered the way and arrived at Sotapanna. So this is not speculation about, and this is not just learning how to control people or behave yourself or whatever. This is about constructing inner capacities which serve the process of transformation. So sabba papas akanan kusalasa upasampada. Kusalasa upasampada. That reminds me of kusalo. Um, <laughs> and that reminds me of a very interesting situation. I was in New Zealand and talking about translating texts, this was a classic example of, of what happens when people translate things too literally. I think always with, with translating, you know, there's, there's the two elements. For me, there's, there's the form and then there's the spirit. Well, this is the case with everything in our life and the way we live. The forms are one thing, we all know that, but getting around like this is not the point. I mean, the point is the quality of being that we arrive at, the harmony, the well-being, the feeling safe, the invitation, the deep silent recognition that that it's okay to deepen and to inquire into and to ask our important questions. This is the spirit, this is the point. And the forms are there to serve that. And and so with translating texts, the forms have their place and I'm always cautious of when people give over dominance to the form. Of course I'm hopefully wisely cautious of people who dismiss the forms as well, but Anyway, talking about Kusilo um, <laughs> and literalism, I was um, in New Zealand a, a few weeks ago <laughs> and Kusilo, I don't know whether it's the first time he's been home in, in quite a few years, but he had organised this meeting with his sister, I think, and his son and his mother and they were all coming together. And to get there, he had this young Burmese lad, very nice guy, and very mindful and very sincere and very committed to practice but not all that articulate in English educated in Burmese English <laughs> so he he went to this meeting and Kusa introduced him to his mother 
and uh, he looks at her and says, oh, you have such a kind face. I can see that when you were young, you were very good looking. <laughs> and of course, that went down like a ton of bricks. You know, you know, when you were young, you were very good looking. Just don't say that in English to somebody's mother. But in Burmese, apparently, in Burmese, I don't know if there's any Burmese people here, but in Burmese, apparently, you can say something, literally, like that. And it's, it's a compliment. So anyway, we, um, Kusla, I'm actually on the way to the airport leaving New Zealand. Kusla was telling me this, and, and I was thinking about translations, and and so for me, it, uh, yeah, it's a it's a helpful reminder to not be uh, to not give over dominance to the forms. We, if we really hold to the forms too tightly, then basically it becomes ridiculous. Quite frankly, not just a joke; it becomes ridiculous. So getting back to our verse, Kusala Supasampada. So having prepared ourselves initially with restraint, I understand this line as meaning to really consciously familiarize ourselves with the power we have within ourselves. Yeah. Many people will go on retreats and throw themselves into very intense practice, come and ordain and get very serious about practice and trying to purify their heart and have the insights and so on. And keep the precepts, but but there's something missing. There's something lacking. And, and, and it expresses itself often as a feeling of powerlessness. People often feel diminished and depleted and unable and lacking and there's something there, there's tremendous aspiration, tremendous enthusiasm, but that's not, that's not enough. It takes more than that. And so my contemplation on this, this line two of kusalasa upasampata, we you know what the word kusala means, you know, wholesome, good, appropriate. Upasampada means that generation of and maintenance of to really consciously know how to generate goodness and to feel again not just like with, with restraint not just to think it's a good idea and go along with it and live with the form but to practice it in appreciation to the point where we really feel it We feel the power, to feel the good feeling, the good feeling. It's like, it's like the good feeling you have when you've eaten well. You just, you know, it's not just, oh, it was a nice meal. I mean, if you're hungry and you've eaten well, you've got a good feeling if you've eaten really well. And, and it's a good feeling when, when we really connect with goodness. And I think this is what's called for. Not just being a nice guy, and more than that, we need to really connect with the recognition that we have the power to create goodness. So, there's all sorts of references in the teachings and, and the examples of our teachers. This is, I think, a really important thing to be able to learn to, to watch people who have goodness and admire it, to really consciously admire goodness is a wonderful thing. The opportunity I had to live with Ajahn Chah was a great privilege, a huge privilege, and to live with Ajahn Tate, to live with these 
these beings who had practiced so committedly, so ably, so fruitfully for so long, and just to witness it, there's something about gazing upon that which is profoundly beautiful and and the delight of that, to delight in beauty, spiritual beauty. Yes, it's okay to delight in architecture as well. Um, or women are those goddess. Or, you know, you know, there's a place for that. But there's a more important place for having a life within us, the capacity to really delight in, the, in beauty wherever we see it. The beauty of, of goodness, wherever we see it. I, on the way down here, I mean, this wasn't Ajahn Tate or, or Ajahn Chah. On the way down here the other day, we we parked in a um, one of these moto motorway places. You stop to go to the toilet and use the phone and so on. We were eating our sandwiches, and and then there's a guy drove in beside us and parked his car, and it looked like a, you know it was a pretty cheap old car. And that was the first mistake I made. And and then the guy opens his door and bangs it against our car and that elicited the second mistake. <laughs> and, um, you know, kind of then looked at him and he was kind of overweight and unshaven. And I, I, I noticed you know, all these thoughts I was having and didn't restrain them very well. I was actually about to say something. And, but then he taps on my window and points down and my robe was sticking out the car door. And we would have driven off and my robe would have been a complete filthy mess. And, and, and just in that moment, I just suddenly, the, the gratitude that he had taken the trouble to point it out to me. And I realized, well, look at how transformative that one little moment of gratitude. I mean, it was just, he, was a, he wasn't an Ajahn Chah or an Ajahn Tate, he was just your average bloke. But he was kind. And just that one moment of kindness and thoughtfulness and the gratitude that I felt completely transformed the rather unwholesome tendencies I was getting caught up in. Now, it's only a small thing, but the reason I raise it is because I think it's important to recognize the the need to be conscious of this process. So often I hear people saying they don't feel they've got energy, they don't feel they've got any power. The abbot's like this, or the abbess, whatever you call Sister Chandratiri. She's like that, and... And people don't feel they have any power and the war that's going on over there and we don't have any power and people feel so powerless. And, but that doesn't mean to say I'm powerless. Uh, what, what's called for actually is a, a recognition that it's part of our job. It's still preparation. I don't think this is a real practice. I think this is still preparation. But it's an essential part of the preparation that we come into the actual feeling, the tangible bodily sense of that power is here. It's here. It's not out there, it's here. And when we, if we cultivate this, we connect with this, we are, we are well resourced when we connect with that, whatever it is, that energetic reality. We don't feel depleted. We don't feel unable if we connect with that. And so I hear a lot of the teachings as encouragement to to really contemplate this. I have a program which I uh, conduct, a correspondence program which which I conduct from Hanum. It's called the Dhamma Sakacha, which, as you all know, means Dhamma Dialogue. And it's uh, a program mainly for people, we started off for people who don't li- live near Buddhist groups. 
and all around the world I think there's about 20, 22 people who we exchange a letter every two months they write, I write an essay on a theme one month and then a month later they write back to me with their reflections on the application of that theme in daily life and talking about how their practice is going and and then I write back to them and so on. But anyway, we've been working through the ten parameters and it's so wonderful to to read all these people's reflections. I mean, they keep writing and saying, so grateful and so grateful, Ajahn, and so grateful and I and here I'm, you know, I'm so grateful because to read, you know, when people suddenly come to recognise the power of patience, you know, somebody wrote, many people have written, but we've made it patience. People are back and oh, I never considered patience as a force. They never recognised patience as a force, and and patience is, is a force. I mean, patience is a force. All those of you that know this verse that we're contemplating the next line and the next stanza. Kanti paramangta potitika. Patient endurance is the supreme tapas. Yeah. Burning. Usually, relate, usually translated as austerity or asceticism. It's, uh, patient endurance is a profoundly important aspect of a practice. Ajahn Chah used to say, when you've tried all your other tricks, loving kindness, you know, try and love some obstruction to death and try and understand something, go and share it with somebody, none of it works. And he said, in the end, you're left with patience. Oton, kwam oton teng tiso kamide oton taunang. And I can remember him saying it, and I used to think, oh, big deal. What about the diamond sutta? <laughs> Give it something profound, I'm poor, will you? And your patient endurance. But in terms of practice, uh, those of you who have been practicing long enough and have exhausted all your tricks, and you get to the point where nothing works anymore, and you decide you don't want to leave, what is there left is, is patience. And if one really not just kind of gives up and says, oh, okay, I'll put up with it, that's bitter endurance. Patient endurance is something else. Patient endurance involves a willingness it's a choice, it's a willingness to be patient. And when I, when I say to myself, as I do more often these days than I've ever done before, I'm just going to be patient. I discover all sorts of things that I, I didn't even know were there. It like, it, it like shines a light. And that's what the forces of goodness are, really. They're like radiances. If we want to dive into the transformation and the transcendence and the purification of that without the power of radiance of the heart, it's just not going to work. But if we consciously connect with these forces of goodness, these potentials within ourselves, well then it generates a radiance and so like the radiance of patience. For me what I discover when I just say, I'm going to be patient. I start to see all these subtle tendencies of fighting that were going on. Yeah, I'm smart enough to know that judging yourself is not very clever and you've got to stop judging and hating yourself is kind of a neurosis you should sort out in your first five years if you're lucky. 
But there are these subtle tendencies that my mother is my best teacher. And somebody was telling me yesterday, because I was saying how difficult I find it with my mother, and somebody told me, said, oh, you've just got it all wrong with your mother, basically. You've just got to draw a boundary and just sit and you'll all be sorted. And for me, it's not quite that simple. I actually really benefit from my mother because she is so impossible. There is nobody more impossible than my mother. And this is a subjective experience because I've heard other people say <laughs> nice things about my mother. But I went home this time just to be with her. And it used to be quite beyond my ability. And it still nearly is. But having discovered a conscious connection with patience, I found that it's workable. It's workable. If I decide to be patient, and that to me, was, that's transformative. And in the past, when I've been there, I've gotten depressed. This time, I actually, it was okay. And I'm very grateful. Um, not just to my mother, also to the Lord Buddha. Um, <laughs> without whom, I don't think I would have discovered this radiance. And it is a radiance, that's the point I really want to make, that that these forces of goodness need to be recognized as radiances of the heart that we, we do have potentially within us. Honesty. It's another one, to be able to be honest. Some of us come into this life with uh, questionable history, some pretty grubby history, some of us, and bad habits, and it's important, of course, to recognize that you, know, you can't go around nicking things. You know, that's got serious consequences and we don't go lying to each other. And after a few years, hopefully, we learn how to, how to stop exaggerating too much. I'm getting there, slowly. But I think the honesty thing is not just a matter of what we do with our body and speech, but also inwardly to really recognize the, the power of honesty. There's a power in being honest and to connect with that. There's, there's a transformative power in it and there's, and there's a strength can come from it, an energy can come from it when you just know you're being honest. And sometimes I hear people, people are puzzled when they, they, they've just realized something that disgusting about themselves. And they feel really good. They realize something really unhealthy about themselves. And they say, but it feels so good and I can't understand it. And, and, and my way to understand that is actually what's, what's good is just to be honest. Just being honest. Or perhaps it's easy to understand the opposite. When we're being dishonest about something, maybe that's easier. When we're denying the truth of something, then that gets in the way of the natural good feeling, the natural radiance, the natural goodness that's there is obstructed, the natural radiance is obstructed by the shadows cast by our dishonesty. And so it's not so much that being honest is so wonderful, but when we cease being dishonest, then something beautiful and radiant is revealed. And it's important to really, I feel, to really connect with these things. A small example of this, I, I often... When I'm going to give a Dhamma talk, in the early years of giving Dhamma talks in public, I used to just be absolutely terrified 
sitting up on the Dhamma seat in front of all these people and you can go rationalize and say, oh, they're all compassionate and they're all nice people. And they, and you get in a situation and, and you just be absolutely terrified and, and your ideas you might have had, the things you might have talked about all disappear and you, you can't contemplate anything and, and it's physically really stressful. And what I discovered was if I was just honest with myself, before I gave the talk and I, I would just sit there and I, I still do this I, I sit and say well the honest truth is I want everybody to be absolutely stunned by everything I say I want them to be riveted and really incredibly impressed with me right okay got that out of the way now I can be a decent human being and just say something. It's a small example, but just that act of being honest with oneself. Now, I, you know, I don't normally say this before I give a talk to people. I, you know, <laughs> I've never said it before in public. And there are a lot of things, actually, we don't have to say to other people in public, like some of the things, or even to another person, like some of the things you might want to say to me or to the abbot that you live with or to my mother. I've heard people say, I've just, I just need to tell you this. And then they tell me something that really belonged to their father or somebody else that abused them a long time ago. It wasn't me at all. They felt they needed to say something, and I can understand that. And yes, there are times when I really felt, I really need to say this to you, mum or dad or Ajahn Sumato. Or but actually, if you say it, it doesn't do any good because something leaks out that doesn't help but still that maybe it needs to be said and and for me this is part of this honesty business that if one within oneself is honest there can be other ways of expressing it sometimes you can just write it down sometimes you can write a letter to the abbot you live with and you think it's got a lot of problems and don't post it. Mm -hmm. So anyway, learning how to connect with these powers of goodness, patience, honesty, determination. Ajahn Vajira was saying that we were talking about vow power. Well, yesterday or recently we were talking about vow power and you know, a lot of people don't understand the power of making vows. Because it's they haven't consciously recognized. We all know determination, aditana, and it's a good thing, and every time Wasa comes around and somebody gets up on the tomato and gives a lecture about making aditanas and so on, and, and we can do it. But if we're not careful, we can do it from a place of thinking it's a good idea, but not actually really feeling the energetic, not really getting in touch with what's going on with this power that's there, this, this, this force, this potential that can be connected with or cultivated however you want to interpret it. And I used to, I used to do it in my first years in Thailand with little things. I never told anybody, but I, during the Wasa, all these other monks, all these really gang monks were determined to not lie down for the Wasa or to eat just bindabat food and to learn the Patimoka. And I never learned any of these things. I never learned the Patimoka. Never, I always lay down and and um, so I would determine things like, well, I'm going to sweep out my cootie every day. And I thought, well, I can do that. 
I knew I could succeed at that. But sometimes I still forgot, and I'd go to bed at night without having swept out my cootie. And I'd, oh, right, I made the vow. Okay, right, so I've got to get up. And it's a silly little thing. But I discovered that if you make vows about things that you know you can keep, what happens is there's a, a growing confidence. So I've seen people make vows that, that they fail at because they're a bit too dramatic and they become disheartened and then they tend to avoid the subject in the future. And that's unfortunate because there's a power here. Vow power is something we need to contemplate and need to cultivate and upasampada, to generate and maintain. And Yajan Vajira, as I started off with saying, said he, he wouldn't have relearned the Patimoka if he hadn't made a vow to do it. I wouldn't have stopped smoking if I hadn't made a vow to do it. And I, I, I really didn't want to smoke I, when, I, when I left, when I was in Thailand for six years and you know, Ajahn Chah wouldn't let you smoke in the monastery but every time I went out of Bangkok I'd always get a packet of fags and start smoking and knowing it would be alright to go back to Wapai Pong and you wouldn't be allowed to smoke and so I wasn't worried about getting addicted to it and it wouldn't be a problem but then I went back to New Zealand after six years and I was oh, this one bicker in New Zealand and one stuff kind of first bicker in New Zealand the whole future of Theravada and Buddhism rests on my shoulders and my precepts and did I squash that ant and who can I confess my arbitrary to and I was a, I was really I was a wreck and I need I need some help and so I got some cigarettes <laughs> and uh, that was what I used to use and I smoked cigarettes and I got addicted and it was embarrassing really humiliating I used to go and hide hide in the toilets and have a fag and then go and give a dumber talk and it was really humiliating I just lost my dignity and I just oh then all this mindfulness that I had around desire, I thought, well, I suppose I could start watching the desire for a cigarette. And I thought, well, it takes an awful long time to deal with things that way. I thought, well, I'll just, I'll just make a vow. I'll just, and it suddenly rang true that I can make a vow. I can make a vow. Well, I can. I can make a vow. I have the right to make a vow. Nobody can stop me from making a vow. And so I went to the shrine and I bowed three times and said, maybe. Would have bear witness to my determination that while I'm in New Zealand for the next several hours, I will not smoke another cigarette again. And I bowed three times. And the thought barely entered my head for the rest of the time I was in New Zealand. And, and there was such a valuable insight. Now, it may not sound like a dramatic thing. So he gave up smoking cigarettes, big deal. But what about the real practice? But and when you can connect with this potential within yourself, you don't feel powerless. You know, when you know that actually this is something we can do, we can cultivate these, these powers of goodness within ourselves. Kusalasa upasampada. We can cultivate, generate, and maintain these w wonderful things. And it counts. People say, what are you doing about the war? Well, whether you should be demonstrating and you know, writing letters or not, that's up to the individuals. But I know there are things that I can be doing. And when you know there are things you can be doing, you don't feel powerless, you don't feel ashamed, you don't feel guilty, you don't feel you're abdicating responsibility. We're doing what is ours to do. So refraining from that which is unskillful, unwholesome, shouldn't be done.
cultivating that which is good knowing this for ourselves for me this is preparation and if we're not prepared then to know the consequences to not to go blaming somebody else like these guys climbing the mountain they went up without enough food on one of the hikes and and they could have done the summit if they'd taken more food they couldn't do it they didn't take enough food they didn't take enough nourishment they were stuck in this snow cave for three days and they didn't on another occasion they didn't take enough gas with them and they couldn't melt the snow and and so they were all parched and they barely made it down the mountain and so it is with us we if we don't prepare ourselves, if we don't adequately prepare ourselves with these understandings, I don't just mean conceptual understandings, I mean these forces, then when it comes to the passions impacting on the heart, as Von Paul was saying, which is the practice, which is the how I understand satchita pariyotapanang, the purification of the heart, the purification of awareness, and the purification of one's own awareness. Satchita is one's own, not just purification of the heart. This is the purification of one's own heart. So refraining from doing that which is evil, cultivating the good, purification of one's own heart. The purification happens in those rare, precious moments where I can't handle myself. I can't handle it anymore. It's beyond me. And we can't strategize it. As far as I'm concerned, I mean, people may disagree, but I don't feel we can strategize practice. We can prepare ourselves for it. We can equip ourselves for it. But when it happens, it happens. And it's, it's usually not convenient. Again, to quote the Vidal Mirkioni and once when I was complaining to her about things and she said, Venerable, when it's the real thing, it's too much, too soon. When it's the real thing, it's too much, too soon. That's what it feels like. And she was saying it from a place, she knew what she was talking about. I remember also listening to Lumpur, Lumpur Char talk about these states that you can get into that it feels like that. Some of you will be familiar with a, um, a story he told. Again, it's been translated and there's a tape of it around where he got stuck in a stage of practice that was unfamiliar to him. He was a really, once he, once he really embarked on practice, once he really embraced practice, he, he's done a lot of study and he prepared himself with a conceptual understanding and he learned all the precepts and he was well equipped conceptually but once he threw himself into practice he, he was with tremendous enthusiasm and he apparently made rapid and good progress but then he says he reached a point where he, he, he said it was like an image that came to him meditation of crossing over a bridge and this image came to a meditation. He was crossing a bridge. And he got to this point where it was like... There's just nothing there. And he was used to going somewhere. He was used to moving forward. And he got to this point and he said... 
And he said he got stuck. And on this occasion, actually, he was talking about the dangers and the difficulties of, of getting stuck in samadhi and how dangerous it is if you get stuck in samadhi and, and, and if you don't really address it, if you don't understand the consequences, if you get stuck in samadhi, actually, you've got to find the strength, the supports to take you back to that level of samadhi to readdress that issue. You get stuck in something in samadhi, something very unpleasant, something very difficult for some people. It's so unattractive if they haven't been properly prepared. Their reactions that will come up mean that actually they, they really, it's just impossible for them to go back there to that place. It's so frightening, so terrorizing. And for him he was saying, yeah, this was, this was really difficult. And, but because he was a very stubborn chap, and, and you could say determined, but I think at that stage also probably a bit stubborn, he hung in there for two years with this state. And he said he just couldn't get past it. He just, every time he'd sit meditation, he said the same image would come back. He would go back to the beginning of his bridge and he would walk in. He'd get to this point of just... And he just kept going at it all the time until eventually he managed, fortunately, to meet another teacher. I think his name was Ajahn Louis, a contemporary of Ajahn Lee at the time. And Ajahn Louis was a very impressive Tamayut monk. And Ajahn Shah came across him out in the forest there and he was impressed, he was inspired by Ajahn Louis as soon as he saw him. He said there was something about this monk. He said, you just saw him and you knew, he knew. So he felt safe and started talking about the struggle of his practice. And Ajahn Louis said, oh yeah, that's what's been happening to you. He says, you want to hear what's been happening to me? And he said, oh, he said, I had this experience where I was walking Chong Krom and we walking up and down and I got to the end of my meditation track and and it was like, I just started sinking into the earth. And I don't know how far I sank. I just sank as far as you can sink. It was a long way. And then, then I started coming back up again. And I came to the ground level. He says, this is really happening as far as I'm concerned. This is really happening. I came to the level of the ground. And then I levitated. I went up in the air. And my body hit the branches. And when my body hit the branches, it exploded. And I can see my large intestines over there and my small intestines over there. And I can see my, you know, my liver and kidneys hanging from the branches. And this is, you know, this is really unsettling. But, he said, I was prepared for it. I knew this is the way it appears to be. There was sufficient sati. Sati, man, mankong, man, mankong, man. Sati is so stable, mindfulness is so well prepared, not just strong and tough, but well established sati. He said, I knew it really appeared that my small intestines were hanging over that branch, my large intestines were over there, my bowels were dangling down over there. And so it didn't freak me out. And so Lumpur says, oh yeah, well that sounds very interesting, but what about me? I've got this thing. And, and Ajahn Louis said to me, and sort hang san ya lao. You've reached the edge of perception. And if you keep pushing, you're going to suffer. You know, he said, it's like a child. For a child, a child sees this clock here. And of course, it's a nice clock and it's good to have around and end the meditation with it. And, but if some child comes here and starts throwing the clock around, it's a cute little toy. And, and you say to the child, now that's not a toy, that's a clock. And it doesn't matter how many times you say it, kid, you know, if it's a little kid and he's not, his perceptions are not up to realising that it's a clock, you can't force the kid to understand it's a clock. 
one understands, kids grow up, and eventually the kid will come to understand it's a clock and will relate to it appropriately. And Ajahn Louis was saying to Ajahn Chah, when you reach the edge of perception, what do you do there? You stand there. You wait there. But if you're not properly prepared with this, what I, I see as agility of practice, this is, I suppose, another force of goodness, one of these potentials that we need to recognize, the factor of agility. If we haven't equipped ourselves with it, well, then we just keep hammering away at the same technique, doing the same thing we've been doing. I'm used to making progress. I'm used to getting somewhere. I'm used to being this sort of person. I'm used to... And we hammer away at it. That's not going to work. We need to be willing. We need to be agile enough to shift. Again, as an example of having to be properly prepared, if we haven't been properly prepared, then we keep forcing our way forward. And sometimes that's not what's called for. What's called for is just standing there, just being there. And that can be a transformation. It's not me doing it. The way happens. Personally, I'm very, very grateful for Lumpur Cha telling that story. I remembered it at just the right time um, a few years ago. Well, quite a few years ago now, I was in America and having an exceptionally bad time. And it's just, I think it was something to do with being 42 years old and a few other factors conspired. And I was having one of my moments in my perfectly designed black hole and it was a day when actually I can still remember the day very well we were at the Grand Canyon and it was one of the worst days of my life I had decided it was better to be on my own and so I left the people I was with and, and walked off along the edge of the Grand Canyon and I reached this point where I was standing and there was a, I was feeling really bad. I mean, really bad. As bad as I've ever felt. And I reached this point where there was just this, if you've been to the Grand Canyon, it just drops away and just goes on forever. And I was standing there right on the edge of this, looking, and I was feeling a bit shaky. And My, my conviction of my belief in, in rebirth is such that I, suicide is never an option as far as I'm concerned. And So that wasn't in my mind. But there was a shaking, there was a trembling going on. And I looked off, just off to the left, there was a sign that said, The Abyss. And I remember Lumpur's story, standing on the edge and not knowing how to go forward. And so I just, I just sat down at that point and waited. And it wasn't enlightening for me, but it was very important to remember that when you reach the point where you can't handle it anymore, to be agile enough to change tack, you know, to keep moving forward is not always it. So the purification of the heart, purification of one's own heart, for me is not something that I know how to do, but I do trust that it happens if we've adequately prepared ourselves with restraint, with the recognition, the cultivation of the 
the forces of goodness that, that we all have within us potentially. And then one's heart oriented towards that which you love more than anything else. If you know what you love more than anything else. I think this is so important you know, to know that one not just interested in Dhamma, you know, but that one loves something. You don't, even to call it Dhamma personally, I can't say I love Dhamma. That word doesn't really truthfully but there is something that I love there's something that I I profoundly care about more than anything else it's a quality that yes could be accurately described as dumb or reality or truth but not to rush to put a word on it rather to feel for the spirit of it the feeling of it that's there to know there is something that when I say I go for refuge to Dhamma, there is something, there is a reality, a real reality that I'm, I'm not only happy to bow down to, I need to bow down to. And if it is something that one consciously connects with, if it is something that we actually feel within us, there is a real reality in relationship with which I'm just utterly insignificant then I do trust that when it comes to these points where the way conspires to put us in a position of utter impossibility, then that which needs to be realized will be realized. But it's not on my terms. And that's why, personally, when I reflect, I go for refuge to the Dhamma, I go for refuge to the Buddha, I go for refuge to the Sangha. I do it quite consciously, this I, me, this person here, this guy that was born in Tiamutu, grew up in, in Morinsville and has that mother and had that father and has this history and has this reputation and has these features, this character that I still experience myself to be, I willingly go for refuge to Dhamma because or I, or I willingly go for refuge to the Buddha I willingly go for refuge to the Sangha because if I don't orient myself towards these principles then my way is what's more important and that's like there's a default mechanism takes over when I'm in a fix when I'm in a difficult situation and I don't know what to do I just don't know what to do the default mechanism, if I haven't prepared myself, if I haven't gone for refuge to Dhamma consciously, regularly, physically, mentally, verbally, my experience is, my reflection is, is, if I reach this position where I don't know what to do, I just say, well, what do I want to do on a superficial level? I say, well, I want to just get out of here, basically. I just don't want to be here. I want to know what I'm supposed to be doing. I want to be sure. I want an answer. I want somebody to tell me. But if we have prepared ourselves with going for refuge to what is, I go for refuge to reality, I go for refuge to what is, then even when we're faced with the situation as what, what is, is I really don't know one can be there for that. As a whole body mind, 
not as a spit-off, watching oneself, not knowing what one's doing. You know, one can do that as well, but that doesn't that doesn't that doesn't do it for us. That doesn't sustain us. The Dhamma sustains us. And so going for refuge to Dhamma, preparing oneself with this conscious recognition of there is something that we love and there's a willingness to orient ourselves towards that and there's a wish to prepare ourselves in service of this. Then again, my trust is that if we have prepared ourselves in these ways, well then we will be sustained, we will be nourished. What happens next is actually not up to me. But I do trust the way will unfold. Thank you very much for your attention.